I'm very proud to be showing Vivian's new work. It's, this is a UK premiere of her new work, The Irreducible Difference of the Other. Um, I've had the great pleasure of knowing Vivian through showing many of her older works over the last few years. And I'm very, very happy to see her new work is still as um, uncompromising and radical as ever. Excuse me, as ever. And I'm very glad that the LSFF and, other, and the ICA are still supporting this kind of work because it's uh, the... Uh, the opportunities for showing this kind of work and disseminating are getting narrower and narrower. So I'm really, really happy to, to be hosting it. So thank you, everyone, and enjoy the films. Um, so I think we'll, we'll uh, begin with the title of the film, um, because I think the title, <clears throat> as soon as you read the title, you're, you're already watching the film or you're starting to think about the film. It's already, you're working or you're, you're, you're thinking about things. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, about this title for you? I know it's a bit of a mouthful, and um, I know that um, <clears throat> it's kind of a, a little cheeky kind of title because it's sort of saying, what the hell is this when you see a film with a title like that, I think, because it's like... But it's sort of... Um, the title is a starting point to... It's like a little bit provocative. It's to get people to sort of make a little bit of an effort to think about some things. That's really why the title's... Why I have that title. But also, the, I mean, you could... I suppose, analyse it, or you could interpret it in many different ways. Um, yeah, I suppose um, I would say the title basically is steeped with Irigaray because I'm very interested in her writing and um, what she, you know, I'm fascinated with her writing, in fact, and um, uh, so it's, it echoes her work where she talks about... Um, many things, including um, that um, we have to find a new, um, healthier and more vital way to, to relate to the other. And she particularly t talks about the couple and how um, it's, there are a lot of problems there, which of course we, we all know from our own, um, from theory from back in decades now. Um, um, for example, the woman is has often been is is positioned as the other, but I think um, it's it's also to do with a broader sense of the other, in terms of like the other the other being could be any, any kind of other could be um, ethnic could be different culture d different race etc etc et and the the um, I've always been interested in um, issues around r relationship, and this goes right back to my first film, and that's why I programmed it with this one. And um, I, it seems to me, from what I've been reading, that throughout lots, most of history, that um, relationship has been about dominating the other, as opposed to finding some way to you know, find some reciprocal way to to re relate, and um, when you see this in history and how um, countries work with other countries, for example, the more powerful, for example, if you take America, for example, um, the relationship is usually based on um, announcing that their way is the only way, etc., etc. So it just seems so kind of tired and so old that we have to find a way to move beyond that now. That, is, that those skills of negotiation, of uh, listening, of all those things are vital if we're going to survive, basically.
Um, and the um, irreducible difference as well, I see, is a reference to a lot of the feminism, the French feminism, rather than the kind of <clears throat> kind of identity politics of equality. It's more about difference and um, uh, that, that, that there is a sort of a line or a, uh, that, that isn't, I'm not the same as you. That you, that, I mean, yeah, we were talking well, about this earlier. Yeah, just that... Um there is a difference here. Yeah. I mean, th that if there's a difference that, that we can, or if that, you know, pe people have different ways of understanding things, people have different perspectives, and um, that uh, you can't have one collapse into the other, that, that there's um, the necessity to um, respect that, you know? Um, and throughout your film, I mean, uh, there's a lot of, uh, in terms of like relationship, um, and like domination, your your film is, I mean, people say non-linear, but I don't really like this term. I'd prefer maybe to use the term um, open open narrative or open uh, montage. Um, so you can sort of see this going through the form as well as the content. Can you talk to us maybe a little bit about how you um, start to make this film about your process? Because I remember you told me you were making a film about war. Um, and this is this is the film that comes from that beginning. And if you can tell us a little bit about that process. Um, I had funding from the Arts Council for this film and I asked if I could make a film where I, where the subject matter would be, I'd be looking at areas around difference around um, war and vulnerability. And um, that I wanted to s make something where I didn't really know how it would, where it would end up or how I would set about doing it, but and in fact, I said as well that that's how I always work anyway. I, it's, it works as a process and I shoot material and the, it, it coalesces, it comes together when I'm editing and um, it, it's, um, it can be quite uh, scary if sometimes, especially if you've um, got a larger budget, there wasn't such a big budget for this, but um, well, I worked with uh, an editor on, on this and she, and that was really an amazing ex experience because it would be quite difficult to work with me as an editor because um, of not being sure where I'm going uh, as it works. You have to try out things and everything. So it was fantastic to work with somebody who was able to get into the same mode or something and, and, and we were able to hit things off each other and everything. That's a, such a wonderful thing to to. to I mean, collaboration when it works is extraordinary, and that can be the same with music as well. I've, I've had that ex experience, and also working with um, some of the people who contributed to the film. Um, for example, J Jennifer Walsh, she made those amazing sounds with her voice. Um, it was a, it was a, a fantastic that she brought that to the film because I didn't really know what she was going to do when she um, turned the recorder on and put the microphone up right up to her mouth. I didn't know what she was going to do, so. Um, Jennifer, as a, as a matter of fact, is performing in the Queen Elizabeth Hall on uh, Tuesday in, um, in, a, in a show of experimental m music, and she's doing some of her vo voice work. Uh, Jennifer is a, an experimental Irish composer who's yeah. a big track record behind her. And Alwyn Fouer, who plays um, Antonine Artaud and also the, the woman figure. I guess herself in a way in this. Um, also is like a very established actor, theatre actor, Beckett actor as well. Um, so as, your, as well, Vivian has often worked with, and have you seen in the 
as you saw in the other film, like with friends or with non-actors and so on. So this is also like you were collaborating with other sort of professionals in their fields, yeah. as well as the editor. So was it such um, your, your DIY kind of... Well, Life was the, the thing changing. About, the thing about working with Alban as well is that it's not like a character, a part, a role that, that you can say, I want you to play this role. It isn't like that. We're kind of, when we set out on the first day, I'd never worked with it before. It was very, I didn't really know how to direct her as such. And it was difficult for, you know, she's such an incredible per performer that she brings a sort of... Um, uh, a power to the to her performance, and and that's what we were looking for. I mean, she's somebody who gives a hundred percent. I'd seen Alwyn play Arto before, and um, she she did a performance of Here Lies as a theatre piece, and it was recorded on low video and, and VHS. And I showed it in the Tate a, a couple of years ago, and she wanted to do something with Arto again, so it seemed perfect to have Arto in the in this film because he's. Um, He's such um, an extraordinary power in the tw 20th century, it seems like. He's such a... Uh, visionary, you see her. Yeah, he's a visionary. Um, and he's constantly struggling with um, language, always battling to be able to, to um, describe something and it slips away all, all the time. It's such a painful thing for, for him, but it's so extraordinary because in a way we can't really describe being alive in words, it seems like. And perhaps that's something, what I'm trying to do with the film is that it becomes a kind of physical experience that perhaps watching the film um, becomes something that you that, that is non-verbal and that um, is very physical and and is meditative because I think for Arto, and it's something I believe in as well, and Professor and many people talk about, like we're in such a noisy, dense world that's kind of closing in on us in this period of late, late capitalism. Everything, all the space, everything visual is, is being taken over and it is going to make us ill. We are be becoming ill and in order to, th to kind of get back to ourselves we need to find a space to um, meditate or to ground ourselves or whatever you know so I try to do that with the film with the long shots and you know that sense of the <clears throat> uh, merging with the sea at the end. And when we were speaking earlier you talked about that scene as marching into the unconscious which I really thought about when I was watching yeah, it well, tonight. The sea can be the unconscious it can be um, it's something that is unlimited, it's something that's fluid, it's the unconscious, it's so many different things. It's not just one, you know, yeah. Well, I think with the film and playing with different um, formats as well, um, to me was interesting to be working with high 8, SD, Super 8, and mixing them up and having it wide and having it narrow and having the different kind of textures, that was sort of important as well. It, may, it makes it more physical somehow and of course Jennifer's sound as as well because it's coming from inside her body you know the sounds yeah that um that the sound in the film and also the, the sort of language of the film is the sort of um try, like trying to articulate um and rather than being inarticulate it's like a sort of pre-articulation or <clears throat> like art excuse me I have a bit of a cough um, like Artaud is the, the quote from Artaud at the beginning that we don't know yet what the next world will be but there is one um, and somehow this um, singer trying to sing and this kind of gibberish that we hear and the whispering there's these languages that are 
trying to come through or trying to invent something new? Yeah, I think the, the the what Arto says at the very beginning is so it's such important such an important statement because it's like it's that there are many different worlds that, that we can that we can create and we mustn't we mustn't we must allow our imagination the freedom to imagine other worlds because we don't have to live in this world. And that, that's kind of the starting point. You know, you have to believe that for for change. And of course, things change. Things are always changing. There's um, Alwyn playing the or channeling this kind of energy force of of Arto, but also there's her in the landscape as a lone figure. And then we have all of these um, scenes of collective protest or collective resistance or change happening. Um, maybe if if we could talk maybe about those that that, that relationship between the lone figure and the collective force, those two energies that are in the film. It's sort of like what I was saying earlier, that we need to be, we need to work with others and we need to be able to be alone, basically. And um, everyone is alone, ultimately, and um, there's a great sense of space in the film and those really wide landscapes, and that's, um, and of course, the n nature and everything, and the sea and the wild sea. Um, it's, it's just that, really, that... Um, uh, that, that we have to come back to ourselves, as well as working with others and with the group. What she says about I will never, never forget, that's a um, little reference to Anna Ak Mak Ak Maktova, the Russian poet, because there's, it just, it's only just in recent years that I've been reading material to do with the wars, to do with the First and Second War. It's like it was always there, I couldn't face it, I couldn't read it. And I've been reading these accounts and um, it's sort of like something I could do now that I'm older, and um, th that's sort of whatever I have in this film is going to continue on into the next film because um, we have to find some other way to um, sort things out apart from war. I mean, it's just so horrible and so awful and so useless. You know, well, we're going to have the um, commemorations of the First World War now, you know, this year. Um, it's, um, it is important never to forget, you know. Okay, <clears throat> we'll take a few questions now, if we have anybody that would like to articulate. Um, thanks so much, Vivian. It was great to see your new film, and um, uh, so lovely to sort of see the merging of the mythic with the kind of everyday quotidian on the street. Um, and uh, I feel you set us up in the language of your of your film, like you always kind of do. But I just wanted to ask you about a specific moment near the start, which I really enjoyed, um, which was the bit in the television and how you kind of moved through this this scene, this black and white scene where there's a, a woman with a dead man and, and she walks from room to room and the camera kind of moves. And it, it sort of introduced the idea, I think, of moving between the interior and the exterior really nicely. But uh, just wondered if you'd have anything more to share on that, on the choice of that, and your intentions. Thank you. Oh, it's difficult to do, to, first of all, he's not dead. He's just, I don't know what happened to him. He's lying there and he, he kind of lifts his head up for, for, for a minute. And then when she comes back from the kitchen with a glass of water, he's gone. And there's just this picture there. It's, it's just, um, it, that was shot in, in Cairo. And um, I think the, the Egyptians have a whole lot of films, which you know I'm really not familiar with. This happened to be on TV just after I arrived. And um, I don't know, it's just so interesting to see um, in a place like Cairo, something that's so familiar somehow, it looks like kind of a melodrama or, or something. And um, 
I suppose um, throughout the film, and I think this is true for other films I have, my other films as well, there's all, there are kind of echoes or references to other times often. And it's there, of course, with the stone and the um, pyramid and it's just kind of mysterious or, or something. It doesn't have any meaning that I can really speak about, you know, except I just like the way it looks. You also, like, as we saw in Shadowgun already, also that we had um, appearing within the yeah. TV. So there's yeah. this kind of within the film, there's another little story yeah, going another, on. Yeah. And, uh, and in uh, other films, you've like excerpts from the radio and the TV and this kind of seeping in and out of sort of more mass media. Right, yeah, that's true. Um, the, um, working with Super 8 was how I started out many years ago. Um, the sound is sync sound. Uh, single system sound, so you have the microphone on and there's none of this control of sound that, that you'd have with 16 mils, so things leak in from the outside that just happen, happen to be, just happen to happen at the moment when you're filming. And I used to really like that with um, Super 8 work, I used to like the things that would come in off the street or in the window or whatever, which you can hear in the first film. Um, and I like that always with film, that it's kind of, there's things happening that are kind of inadvertent or <laughs> that are accidental or whatever, you know? Like that. Uh, we had a question here in the third row. It's kind of difficult. I'm just trying to formulate the question in my mind, but I suppose I'm trying to ask quite a broad, general thing. In uh, do you see a, a way, um, uh, a, a role where women would have power in um, um, uh, helping to prevent war and uh, to, uh, um, in a way, we're all complicit. With it, because a lot of mothers are uh, there's the hero worship of soldiers, and um, uh, the, uh, quite often it's men that are actually sent to the war zones. Um, but there are mothers and wives and sisters that are sometimes supporting it all. They've been, uh, for whatever reason. Um, that's true. That's always happened throughout history. But then when it happens, and people say, "Oh God, why do we have this war?" You know, that happens again and again. It's kind of like um, I suppose we we do have to all have to do something about um, questioning the need for war. Of course, there's a whole other agenda. There's lots of other things behind that, like the arms the arms sales of, of arms to all these countries, and that's kind of glossed over and not talked about very much. Who's making the money off this? You know, and we all know who. And like. Um, is this an ethical thing? You know, lots of questions are, are, are around that. Of course, it's all incredibly complex, you know, how things operate in, in the world, but it just seems that um, we, we all just have to keep trying to find a way to, um, to not allow it to happen. And it isn't, it isn't easy. I mean, what, what, what's your, what was the guy who died, killed himself, so, so we think, or we don't know what happened to him, but who decided, that, or who said, who'd been to Iraq and said there were no arms of mass, you know, what was his name? David yeah, David Kelly, yeah, I mean, it's like, when it comes to the crunch and, you know, the, the people in power, um, we have to stop allowing them making these decisions off their own bat, without, when, when obviously there was so much opposition to, to the war that they actually went ahead and did it anyway, it just, um, we, you know, that we have to keep trying to stop that, that these d decisions aren't made, even though everyone's opposed to it. Um, can I just add, I saw a quote yesterday, I can't remember which minister it was, whether it was uh, the education minister or not, who was, or, or somebody was criticising Blackadder and uh, other um, 
uh, kind of portrayals, he called it lefty portrayals of war as being run by incompetent elites and saying this was not a very helpful, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but that, that, that he didn't uh, feel this was very helpful uh, portrayal uh, and that it was, it was uh, distorted actually. I, I don't know if anybody here remembers who, which minister it was that was, yeah, it was, it, it was go, uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, we've got this um, disconnect. Yes, uh, there's a disconnect. So maybe the other is, is also um, the, the people that we allow to uh, rule us, the people that we uh, we consume their goods, which are fueling uh, the arms industry and etc. etc. Et um, uh, so the other is is really <laughs> the taxpayers uh, uh, that, that are funding it all. Uh, we've actually had Krugman, Paul Krugman, uh, uh, Paul Krugman from America, uh, 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 the, the economist, uh, yeah. saying that fiat money uh, is fueled by um, uh, taxpayers and men with guns. Mm -hmm. He's actually come out and been quoted uh, saying that because they were discussing Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, so you know, this this other the title of your film. Uh, it's also uh, there's a, there's a, a big other leap between the people that are leading us and, and uh, running corporations that we're giving our money and time to uh, and actually taxpayers and, and uh, other people and people that are putting themselves on the front line in these wars and coming back tra traumatised. Uh, anyway, but the quote is what I really wanted to mention that, that I can see now that you know, the, the tide is turning. It's just whether um, people on the ground can actually get the momentum behind that wave to, to make it really unfashionable, as right. it were. Well, it's the same thing with, say, the um, um, sweat factories in India or, or wherever, making all these ch cheap clothes, and the place goes on fire, and you, we, we, we're, we're horrified looking at these stories, but we're still going to pennies to buy the clothes, you know? It's the same thing, yeah. Um, I just, I suppose I want to follow up on that bit in a maybe a different angle. Um, just thinking about, in the second film, the footage from Giza, yeah. and I'm guessing that, is that the Giant's Causeway at the beginning as well, um, by the sea? Uh, no. No. But th this kind of monumental um, sort of natural architecture going out into the sea, and then, as you said, the artist talking about granite, mm. and at the same time you have reeds and heathers, these very short-lived plants. So I was thinking about, time in the film and how there are these human experiences occurring like the protests in Tahrir the economic protests in Ireland but then at the same time this kind of geological time and natural time and I wondered if you were thinking about how human experience and human life sort of falls in between these scales of time and how that's another kind of irreducible difference that we're different from the natural world in that sort of temporal way because film is a time-based art. Yeah, I don't know about being different from the natural world. I think we're part of the natural world, and we it's, we're, we're, we need to not forget that, really. And that's one of the things that, that Artaud was always trying to say, I think, is that, um, you know, how, how in this world, we how we treat the natural world is... Um, we're, we're dependent on them, basically. But isn't the sp film speaking about that dislocation in a way, that tension between, and that's what it is? Because one level you're talking about relationship as an ideal, but what I think for me the film brings up is a lot of dislocation so with the schizophrenia of um, 
auto, you know, actually even dislocation within the self, or a sense of dislocation. Yes, we want to try and connect, but actually it's sort of showing kind of crevices of dislocation of different worlds that don't connect, that it seems even the way that you've filmed it or juxtaposed pieces that are where's that, there's a sort of sense of dislocation. I, I'm... <coughs> I'm just putting that as a question. That's it right. I mean, that's absolutely right. It's kind of both. It's both. It's it's shifting between one a bit dislocation. But that's like the illness that you were. Yeah. It's shifting between both. The whole structure of the film is fragmented, and that's. Mm. There is this time sense of time uh, 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 as well, and um, commenting on, on other cultures from a, from a distance. You know that sort of filtering, you know, with the photographs of India. Mm. Like, how do we relate to someone from India, for example, someone from this cult from Western culture? And it's also so a time difference as well. The photographs are old. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it more as a sort of uh, pluralistic rather than dislocation film. So it's like there, there are connections to be made. Yeah. So it's like a, a, an, a, an attempt at new kind of language. They're not like random images, by any, I don't think. And there's sort of things that repeat or come back. There's like a rhythm where our toe comes back in, and there's sort of some progressions, if you like. And then this, the Alwyn with the with in the, the long-haired figure that's going through the landscape, yeah. and that comes to a kind of conclusion. Yeah. I, th I think the structure is like um, Sarah said. It is fractured. It is dislocated. But somehow or another, it isn't as well. The structure is very tight, and every second of it is. It's kind of fits, it fits, you know, even though it is dislocated. That's what I'm trying to do. A tension between the two. It's a tension between the two. Thanks. I'm just curious about the first film, where, where that came from, where you were when you shot that. Um, I mean, obviously New York, but sort of your place in your life. I mean, <clears throat> the second one seems to come from a sense of, like, despair for humanity or whatever, but... but what I'm just interested in hearing about the first one a bit more. I don't think there's despair for humanity. Very opposite. Um, the first film, yeah, that was uh, one of my, the first films I made. We made one or two films, one film before that. And it was made in New York, and it's um, uh, when I was living there in the 70s, in the late 70s. I think, you know, it's about the relationship between two people is part of the story any, anyhow, and it's about identity as well and it's power relations and it's that that song is, is is about relationship and in some ways it's kind of horrifying to me the song it was at the time and I was just trying to I was asking questions around how does one relate to another is it always like that one has to put the other down or how how, how do you get it like more um, how, and also stuff I'd read in philosophy was um, describing relationship as something that was conflictual or that one had to dominate the other and that I've always been kind of, you know, not unhappy with that really, you know. I mean, I'm not really believing it, not believing that it has to be this way. Thanks. Looking at a really early film of yours and a very contemporary film of yours. Obviously, there's a whole kind of life in between that. I just wondered, and I mean, formally, there are kind of very strong connections, I think, to it, to them. But I just wondered how you felt seeing those two films together. I, th 
I think that they work together in a peculiar kind of way, you know. And I like that. Um, yeah, and maybe this idea you had about relationship and dominance, this sort of a yeah, very personal they, it one. It continues with the second one. Yeah, it's mm. it is a subject of the second one for sure. Yeah, I suppose how we're constructed or how we're constituted through imagery as as well would be something that's that's there in both of them mm. through representation. Also, your representation of women is something throughout your work, not just in these, is always something uh, remarkable because uh, I suppose especially in when you were making your first films, when um, you know it was after like uh, Mulvey had written about uh, the male gaze and everything, and it was it was very difficult to even you know if you were so self-consciously feminist, it was even difficult. I mean, you, you've told me this difficult to, in that uh, time to. Uh, to film women or write narratives or represent them in, in ways that were sort of seen as negative and that, that your film, She Had Her Gun Already, could have been seen as some kind of negative portrayal of women or relationships or how women deal with one another and so on as well. But you sort of went for it and went there. Yeah, there was, um, at the time, there was a mixed reaction to the film um, from some people, yeah. But in this film, you're also, I suppose, it's, uh, to continue the point, in this newer film, there's a sort of representation of, of gender that we're not used to as well, I think, in film. Um, through um, Alwyn playing the figure of Arto, and then also playing this figure striding through the landscape. And then the other um, sort of more documentary people that we meet as well, that you're sort of, um, you know, pushing ideas of what, uh, what's expected. Yeah, I mean, um I generally am uh, more interested in working with or representing women with my films just because um, they've been a bit neglected throughout the history of film sort of thing. So that's, that's the reason. That is the reason. And plus because I'm a woman myself, so I'm, I'm kind of fine. I'm just more interested in it maybe. But I have nothing against having men in film as well. One more question. Okay, it's, it's a very, it's it's not such a germane, you know, central question, but it's just I wondered whether it was important that Alwyn enters that square pond, and oh. what it means, the square yes. pond, if you could say. Yeah, I don't really know how to answer that. I just know she wanted to get into that water, and it was winter time. It was January. I couldn't believe it, you know. But um, I like it though, and I like the way Jennifer does the sound with that when she's going going into the water. Um, it's um, it's slightly shocking to see suddenly her go into the water, I think. But there's no deep meaning behind it. So do we have any other um, questions or comments to end? Oh, we're going to the bar. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll have a hot whiskey, I think. <laughs> so thank you very much, Vivian. And thank you all for your questions. <laughs>